All right, good morning. Let's uh, come back in, find our seats, and have uh, time in the Word of God together. Um, so, good morning, everybody. God bless you. Welcome to those who are watching online. Uh, our Bible study this morning is in Colossians chapter 3. We'll pick it up at verse 8. Uh, we'll go through potentially verse 17. But before I do that, just a couple of reminders. We have prayer meeting on Wednesday nights at 6.30. That is virtual prayer meeting, so it's easily accessible. You can connect through the internet, uh, through our website, rather. Uh, also, we have a marriage tune-up this coming Saturday at 8.30. I appreciate your prayers for that, um, that God would just bring a, a good word and uh, give us some, yeah, he would meet with us and just really encourage us in, in marriage. Uh, pursuit of Biblical Manhood, uh, we meet once a month, Saturday the 21st, third Saturday of each month. So there that is as a reminder, 8.30 to 10.30. And then upcoming in uh, September 11th is our next Think Together town hall format, as you all know. And uh, we talk about things that are, yeah, just give some devotion to some time to talk about matters that are need some discussing <laughs> together. So um, that's, uh, we'll be talking about gender, as I mentioned to you in the past. So. so let's turn to Colossians 3, verse 8, and I'll pick it up right there and read through verse 17, and we'll see what the Lord has for us today. Colossians 3, verse 8. Now, but now you yourselves are to put off all these anger, wrath, malice, slander, and filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new who is renewed or being renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another, if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. <clears throat> Excuse me. So, uh, as I mentioned uh, Last week, we now come in Paul's letter to this church in Colossae to the practical side of his uh, teaching or is in his letter, a very common format for Paul to give 
doctrine or theological perspective and then to follow that up with how do you live that out? How does that apply to my life wherever I am? Um, these are words that have come from God by the Holy Spirit. So they apply to us even though it was an ancient civilization back in somewhere around 60, 62 AD was when Paul wrote this letter to the church. But uh, the words are timeless and the heart of man is always desperately in need of God's grace to live out uh, our lives uh, for his glory. The message of Colossae is the glory of Christ. And so I guess I would title today's message, The Glory of Christ in the Body of Christ. Because as you notice in these verses, it's all, of, it's all our interpersonal relationships. We start talking about things like anger and wrath and malice and slander and bad language and lying to one another, uh, contrasted with the characteristics of Jesus himself, where Paul says to put on uh, tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness. Those things are not done alone. They're done in our relationships with each other. So... um, that's where we're at. This is a message. It'll be a little different than last week. Last week we really spent a bunch of our time, most of our time, really looking at verse 5, where Paul says to put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. That was very personal. That was very personal. Paul really spoke to each member, to you and I in the church, and he said, look, Live a holy life, right? And he started with our actions, that is, sexual immorality. And then he went inward to what causes those actions, the evil desires and the passions and the covetousness. Here in verse 8, he's talking about attitudes and emotions that can be very strong and powerful, but he does the opposite. He starts with the inward and he moves to the outward. The expression of anger or wrath or malice can be slander and bad language that comes out of my mouth. You see what I'm saying there, Paul? Just There's always there's a cause, <laughs> there's a root, and it's expressed in the fruit, as we often say, Right? Um, so let me say a couple of things before we begin here, that even though in verses five, in verse 5, Paul talks about personal decisions that we make, that is, in living a holy life, and particularly in this, added, uh, in this relationship to our sexuality, I don't want you to misunderstand that the impact of a holy life and putting to death, or that is depriving our carnal nature of the desire for sex outside of marriage, expressed in a variety of different ways, the impact that that has on the greater body of Christ is not to be underrated. Okay? So I want to connect something to you where Paul, in verse 5, he talks about these... uh, Well, he uses these five different things, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, desiring what is not mine. 
having a strong desire to get what is not mine. He goes, that's idolatry. Right? Come back to what uh, Natalia, what she led in worship, right? Christ is enough. And so idolatry is, you know, I'm, I'm depending on or desiring something or someone to bring the, the satisfaction and the validation in my life that only Jesus can provide ultimately. So those are very personal things. But Paul's writing here in the context of the body of Christ. It's interesting, if you read, or when you read Ephesians, you'll see a lot of similarity between Ephesians and Colossians, particularly in the applicational side of things. Ephesians is six chapters, and it breaks very perfectly three chapters of doctrine and theology, three chapters of application. And after Paul preaches about the, go the gospel, the, the truth of uh, of Christ and what he's accomplished in Ephesians, he opens up chapter 5 with those famous words, endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And so he sees uh, the, the greater scope, the, the corporate body of Christ, which is made up of individual members, you and I. What I'm trying to say to you, friends, is that it makes a difference how we live our lives personally. So, in other words, I don't want us to detach all that Paul says in the rest of this portion about uh, living together in harmony and in peace and let the peace of God rule. I don't want us to detach our personal choices from that, and here's why. Verse 5, compare that to verse 14. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. Here's my point. Love, by its nature, is self-sacrificing. It is me giving up for the sake of another. This is love. Do you see the contrast? If I am practicing in my Christian life a life of consuming, I want and I'm going to get that which I shouldn't have, and if I'm practicing that on a regular basis, I'm not learning how to love. And when you press, and when this push comes to shove, and you're actually in a fellowship with one another, don't fool yourself, Scott, to think that I can live like hell during the week and then come and get in fellowship, and I'm actually going to love my brother and sister in a sacrificial, self-denying, other-centered sort of way. Not if I'm practicing a common practice of just consuming and everything's about me. That's why Paul said, see, see, I don't want you to detach your holy life personally from the greater impact that that has on the body of Christ. So that's the uh, first thing I'd like to say. Um, the other thing I'd like to say is this, is that... Um, Based on the date of the writing of the Gospels and the book of Acts and all the other epistles, it's very unlikely, in, it's very unlikely, based on the date of the writing of the Gospels and Acts 
and Romans, which were, most of the Gospels were written, some we believe Mark being the first one, was written somewhere around 50 or 55 A.D. Paul wrote this letter to the church in Colossae, which is out sort of the, the frontier of the extent of the Gospel there within Turkey. Uh, he wrote that somewhere around 60. As compared to the date of the Gospels, and certainly not John or any of John's writings, now hang in with me and hear me out on this. John wrote Revelation. These people never had Revelation. They never had the epistles. Those were written 20, 30 years after this, they got this letter. Mark, we believe, was written somewhere around 50, 55. And there's speculation that can vary 5, 10 years either way. Matthew and Luke followed, right? So my point is this. In the slow process of copying and circulating what had been written, it's very unlikely that these people had ever read the Gospels. All the blessing and the benefit that you and I have to just casually sit down and, and open up Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John and read about the life of Jesus as witnessed or testified by those who lived and walked and worked and ministered with him. John's first epistle, right? John chapter 1. That's which we have seen, which we have heard, which our eyes have looked upon, which our hands have handled of the word of life. Right? John was there. He saw. Matthew was there. He saw. Mark spent time with Peter. Peter dictating and relating to Mark and Mark writing it out. These people never read those things. All that to say this. Their experience of the reality of the nature of Jesus Christ primarily came through their fellowship with one another. This is what Paul is exhorting us to this morning. Put off the old man, these famous put off, put on, Right? Put off the old man and put on the new man. The new man which is created after the image of Jesus Christ. Are you with me, friends? So I think the point is, the, the more they uh, lived according to what Paul is writing and, and lived obediently and, and worked through their sanctification, the more they would discover in themselves and corporately the nature of Jesus Christ. And, and in some respects, I'm a bit jealous because I fully suspect that back though in those days, this was the only church in Colossae. And not having read the Gospels, they didn't have any other option. You get born again by the Spirit of God, dude, you join the church. And you come, and there was a leader. We believe it was, I think his name's Aristarchus. Uh, we'll talk about that, right? But, you know, did they even have scriptures? Possibly. Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly and sing song. psalms. Evidently, they had psalms. There was a big Jewish population, so perhaps they had the Old Testament scriptures, and they could read from those scriptures, Right? As Epaphras might have taught them, uh, you know, the prophecies of Jesus, especially some, or Isaiah 53, right? His character, his nature, his humility, 
his connection with fallen man and the brokenness in this world and how he offered himself. All these many beautiful things. So there was no other option. Let me say it to you this way. For this church, gathering and fellowship together was the main course. This was the, this was the everything for them. For you and I, and unfortunately in the American evangelical church, you know, our connection to the local body, it's like an hors d'oeuvre or a dessert. It's like, well, it's optional. You know, I can do this or not. I was in fellowship with a local pastor where their church governance and structure is a little bit different than ours, where they actually have a formal membership. And I questioned him on that because he said, yeah, some stuff's gone down in their local church. And he goes, people have left. I said, but don't you have a membership? He goes, it doesn't matter. If they don't like it, they leave. It's like, really? I mean, Paul's very realistic here. He starts talking about things like anger. Yeah, people get angry with each other. These are interpersonal relationships. Paul's no stranger to this, personally. None of us are exempt. Stuff happens. And when it happens, then it's crunch time. <laughs> now we call upon Jesus Christ who lives in me. That's the point Paul makes at the end of chapter or verse 11. But Christ is all and in all. And he's made that point repeatedly. His famous verse, chapter 1, the glory of the mystery of the, among the Gentiles, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And so as they continued in fellowship with no other option, and, and, and offenses would come, and things would get said or misunderstood, and people get angry with each other, and they come from very bulk backgrounds, it's a very diverse church. Paul doesn't mention these uh, ethnic groups or racial groups, Greek and Jew and so on, just casually, it's because, yeah, there's a representation of that in this church in Colossae. And so it was, it was their discovery of who Jesus is would be realized in them personally and corporately. And the glory of Christ would be made known in the body of Christ. It's a beautiful thing. You know, Jesus actually prayed for this, as you know, in John 17. Neither pray I for these alone, speaking of his disciples, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. As these disciples go out and preach the gospel, this Jesus knew from the beginning the extent of his propitiatory sacrifice, that it was for all men. He goes, Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. Interesting. Interesting. So, the glory of Christ in the body of Christ. And Paul, at first, he, he, in verse 5, he talked about these five things uh, that were personal. Now he talks about our interpersonal relationship. But they're actually all tied together. I just want to repeat myself on that. Right? So, keep walking by faith, brothers and sisters. 
right? You detect um, in, uh, pro improper <laughs> attitudes and passions uh, in, a, in a carnal, in a sexual manner, in a covetous way. You know, Paul says, put that to death. Verse 6, he said, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. But now, verse 8, but now. And I think what he's saying there is that in contrast in the way in which you used to walk in your natural man, in your unsaved state, right? You or I would get angry and, and go through all kinds of breakdown in relationships. But now, now, you are to put off all these. To put off, I believe, has very much the same sort of idea as to put to death or to mortify or to deprive of the power. To put off. I heard it described a long time ago by a pastor friend of mine who I think, he just nailed it. He goes, to put off, it literally the word means to, uh, to remove from you and to set aside. To remove and to set aside. Think of it this way. You're in your apartment, you press your, put your foot on the trash can and the lid opens up and this terrible stench comes out because <laughs> you put some chicken bones in there a couple days ago and it's been really hot. What do you do? You pull that bag out of there and you carry it out and you set it aside. You take the trash out, right? Because it's stinky, rotten, smelly flesh, right? To put off means to take, that's kind of what it means. You're, you're taking these attitudes that are still there in us as believers, right? Of anger and so on. And you put them aside. How do you do that? Practically speaking, you look at Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit is at work in our lives and He's convicting us and He's convincing us of attitudes that we have inside of us in the, in the context of our interpersonal relationships. And it can be in or out of the church. Really doesn't matter to me. But Paul's stressing here among the believers... But now, now, <laughs> I wonder how that hit these people who were hearing Paul's message, right? Knowing that, you know what, they're just a normal church. There's probably some misunderstandings and people aren't getting along right now. And Paul's like, but now, you used to live that way. You're not going to live like that anymore. Why? Because Jesus is in you. So putting off means looking at the cross, looking at Christ, I take up that thing that's within me and I bring it to Him and I say, Lord Jesus, I'm really upset right now and I, my tendency is to want to poke His eye out. Right? Or whatever. And the Lord's like, let me work with you on that. So how do you put off? You do it through prayer, through uh, Bible study, through uh, open, honest conversation for a filling of the Holy Spirit and you're just trying to have Jesus who lives in us conquer and show His glory in the midst of it. 
But now you yourselves are to put off all these, Paul says. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and filthy language. I'm just going to take a few minutes and talk about some of these. Anger, since Paul, again, he starts with the inside and he works to the outside. Jesus said it very clearly. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so if there's anger and there's wrath and there's malice, which is a desire to do harm to somebody, there's ill will, if that's in there, guess what? It's going to come out of your mouth. So the next time you say something that's offensive, don't say, well, I didn't mean to say that. That's not true. You did mean to say that. You're just surprised that it came out and now you're embarrassed. No, it was in there. Paul says, put that off. He talks about there in verse 9, he says, put off the old man. What's that mean, the old man? It means the, the, the carnal nature. And here's a reality that sometimes strikes a new believer very shockingly. Like you have this dramatic, radical, genuine, heartfelt realization that you're born again. You come into a personal relationship. You now are worshiping in spirit and in truth something you never did before. And you find yourself at the same time, it's like, wait a minute, I thought I was justified. Why am I struggling with these things? I thought I was forgiven completely. And it, yep, guess what? With the new nature comes the old nature. And they sort of live parallel to each other. Jesus is the king, and the flesh doesn't like that and wants to dethrone him and stand up in our heart and rule and reign with all of his evil. You can't trust your own heart, but you can always trust the Lord. So Paul says anger, he starts there. Now the word there in the Greek is orge. And it's, uh, it's more, I would say, more of a, a long, slow burn. It's there, and he uses the next word is wrath, which is more of a, a flare-up. It boils over. <laughs> so uh, if you're familiar with cooking a little bit, then maybe you take some soup and you put it on the, that small little warming burner in the back of your stove, and you have it just on a slow warm. It's just a long, it's kind of a settled condition. Okay? That's the anger that Paul is talking about there. It's interesting to me that most often in the New Testament, that word anger actually is used to describe God's judgment against unrepentant sinners. In fact, it's the very same word that's translated wrath in verse 6. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. So even though it's anger in verse 8 and it's wrath in verse 6, it's actually orge, it's the same word. Meaning there's a settled disposition that God is going to bring a just judgment on those who outside of faith, and that's just a, a, a settled fact that can only be altered through faith in Christ. So Paul starts there. And he's, and he's saying to you and I, is there sort of a settled disposition where maybe you have established a judgment that you've made upon another? Gosh, it's terrible. 
And I'm, I'm saying that because the word usually refers to God's judgment against unrepentant sinners. Well, he does it perfectly, and he does it justly, and he does it righteously, and it's right. You and I do it. Now, obviously, anger can be a good emotion. It can be used. It's strong. It's, it can have uh, a, a good proper time for that. Like, if you get angry at somebody exploiting the, that of another, that's a good thing. Love doesn't rejoice in evil. Jesus cleansed the temple because uh, the leadership were ripping off the people, made him angry. By the time he got undone, done and cleansed the temple, his chest is heaving. He was very violent. Took a whip and started beating the animals, and he's looking at these people in the eye and made him angry. It was a righteous anger. I'm not talking about that here. I'm talking about the anger that you and I adopt in ourselves because I made a judgment on somebody, and I've condemned them, and I've poked them in my own mind, in the eye, I gifts you will. I'm sorry, I keep saying that because I got Matthew 7 in my mind where God, Jesus said, judge not that you be not judged. For the judgment you pronounce will be judged, you will be judged. You know the first mention of anger is where? Anybody know? Genesis chapter 4. Cain and Abel. They each brought a sacrifice, an offering to God. God had respect and he had regarded Abel's, but he didn't regard Cain. Why? Not because of what they offered, but because of the attitude that they have in which they offered it. Cain evidently had something against his brother Abel, and even though he played the religious part and he brought an offering of the fruit of the ground, God said, I'm not respecting that, Cain, because you've got something against your brother. Cain was very angry and his face fell. And Jesus said to Cain, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not what is right, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is to have you, but you must rule over it. You know what? Saint Cain, excuse me, never put off. Here's the word of God. God himself comes to Cain and says, bro, I see what's in your heart. I want you to deal with that. Take the trash out. He didn't do it. Result? Killed his brother. Murdered him in cold blood. Premeditated. Called him out into the field. Moses struggled with anger. Came out of his place there in Exodus, or in Egypt rather, and he killed a man. Later in his life in ministry, <laughs> Numbers chapter 20, you all remember this? It was a famous scene where the people started complaining to Moses and said, we are, we are thirsty and you have brought us into this wilderness and we're dying of thirst. Now Moses had already used the rod once and he had hit a rock and water came out and everybody got refreshed. This was some time after that. And then God said to Moses, all right, Moses, I hear their need. Take your rod, go up, and speak to the rock. And water will come out, and I'll refresh the people. He says, Moses said to them, to the people, excuse me, listen, you rebels, must we bring you water out of this rock? <laughs> because, uh, so then Moses hit the rock. God said, speak to it, and he hit it. Moses didn't speak to the rock. He, speak, he spoke to the people. His anger... He just, it, it 
he blew it. And it cost him. Paul's no stranger to anger. The famous split between him and Barnabas in Acts 15. Right? It says uh, Barnabas was determined and Paul insisted. Result, the contention became so sharp that they parted one from another. Interesting. And it was all over Barnabas' nephew, Mark. Barnabas was determined. Paul insisted. And the contention became so sharp, Paul got angry. Again in Acts 23, Paul standing before the, the Jewish high court there in, in uh, Jerusalem. And they brought Paul in as a prisoner. And they're like, Who, what are you doing, son? And he said, I live in all good conscience before God and men. And there's Paul standing before the high priest. Evidently, he didn't know it was a high priest. I don't know how he didn't know that, but he didn't. And the high priest ordered that Paul would be slapped across the face. You know what Paul's immediate response was? He said, God will slap you, you corrupt hypocrite. (laughs) What kind of judge are you to break the law yourself by ordering me to be struck like that? And one of the guys standing next to Paul said, how dare you insult God's high priest? It came out of his heart and right out of his mouth. And Paul, it just shows you the humility of of this Paul. He said, Brothers, I did not realize that he was a high priest, for it is written, do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. So, he's no stranger to anger, and neither are you or I. None of us are exempt. It's something that we deal with. And when the Holy Spirit brings it to our mind, then, uh, then Paul's saying, put it off. This is not beneficial to the unity that God wants in his church. It's damaging. Paul starts with anger. He goes to wrath. The Greek word is thumos. Right? We get our word thermos from that. It means to flare up, to boil over. It's like the Incredible Hulk. Right? Rage and he just like turns into this green monster. Right? Starts damaging stuff. And that's what happens inside of me. If I keep anger on a slow burn, right? And then something, we don't deal with it, then it's going to boil over. And we become damaging. Malice, he said. Um, evil, a desire to hurt, to do evil against. You wish bad for others. Do you see the awful progression? And then comes slander. And then comes slander. By the way, do you know what the word devil means? It means slander. Slanderous. You look it up in your dictionary, devil means slanderous, someone who speaks badly of another. And I'll tell you what, friends, <laughs> this is really bad. That is really bad. In this day and age in which we live, it is so easy for the cut and paste people to take somebody's comment that is made in the context of a greater sermon or conversation but it's made publicly and it's recorded, video, audio, and you take that one little comment and you pull it out of there and then you post it and then it goes across the World Wide Web and everybody goes, look it, that guy is bad. I know of a very good church right now as I speak this morning. 
a very good church in a very prominent city in our country who has very respectable, God-fearing, Jesus-loving, humble leadership. And somebody took something that was said by their lead pastor, pulled it out of context, put it on the internet, and it went viral. Dave Platt's a bad man. No, he isn't. He's a good brother. And he's had to endure a lot. That's slander. And it's so easy to put somebody down today. And, the church is, and that church is going through it right now. And I wonder, didn't the Holy Spirit say to somebody, and it's gone, it's gone really bad. I won't get into any of the details. It's just filthy stuff that's happened. And it is happening. And I wonder, the Holy Spirit who is in them, it's Christ who is in them, must have said to somebody at some point in time, what are you doing, man? What intention do you have? Is this furthering the gospel? Where are you in your relationship with me? Didn't take heed? Start murdering people with your words. Weaponize your words. And then filthy language that comes out of the mouth. Don't lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds. Stop lying. (laughs) And have put on the new man. They've put off the old man and have put on the new man. By the way, by the way, to put off the old man. Nowhere in the Bible, in the New Testament, in the Gospel, will you ever see your old nature can be renovated or remodeled or improved. The only solution is crucifixion. It needs to be put to death. And Jesus has accomplished that for us and He gives us the victory. Because our old man will keep us as enemies to God and it will keep us separated from Him. And Jesus who loves people so much that He gave His only life, He's brought us into... You put off what was destroying you. Don't try to remodel Right? There's no renovation. It's you, you take the trash out, put off the old man with his deeds, and you've put on the new man who is renewed or is being renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him, who's being renewed. Put off, put on. You know, it's interesting in the old days, in the time when in this era, when people would get baptized, they'd come to faith in Christ and then baptism would follow. They would come to the waters of baptism wearing their old everyday work clothes. And they would take off their outer work clothes. Or it's a Greek Roman culture. I don't know how much they would take off, but they'd take it off. They'd lay it down. Then they'd go into the waters of baptism, identifying with Jesus and his death and resurrection, that external witness of the internal witness. And then as they came back out, they wouldn't put their old clothes back on. They were given a white garment, right? Put on the righteousness of Christ or Christ himself. There's a very, they understood these words, very much so. Put off your old man with his deeds and you've put on the new who is being renewed in knowledge according to the image of him 
who created him. We are recreated. Paul intentionally uses language right there that is very much right out of Genesis 1.27. When God created man, he created him in his own image, in his own likeness. He created man. And so we are born again and we are regenerated. There's a new creation, right? And we're being renewed. It's a constant state and a constant requirement for us to live humbly and walk humbly with our God. I think a great example there is Paul in 2 Corinthians 4.16. He goes, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. If you're not familiar with 2 Corinthians 4, Paul in 5 and 6, Paul starts going through the struggles that he had as a missionary, the persecution and all the difficulties he had in interacting with people who hated his guts and wanted to see him dead. In fact, in Philippians, we read of brothers in the church in Philippians who were preaching the gospel, or sorry, the church in Romans who were preaching the gospel, supposing to add more affliction to Paul. They were jealous for his place as an apostle. And Paul's like, that hurts, but you know what? Christ has preached. He dealt with it. He's a real man. He struggled with anger like you and me. And he hears word that there's people out there trying to make his brothers in Christ that he may have led to Jesus in the first place. And yet because of their own envy, they're preaching so that they can see Paul struggle and, and squirm in his pain. Paul's like wrestled with it through prayer. And I think Paul got to a place where it's like, Oh, that he has increased. May he increase even more and may I decrease. And he sees the glory of Christ for me to live as Christ, to die as gain. And so 2 Corinthians 4, as Paul starts to talk about a lot of the personal struggles he had gone through. He goes, but I'm being renewed day by day. The outward man is perishing. It hurts. A lot of things hurt. But Jesus is, is blessing on the inside. Being renewed. <laughs> Verse 11, where there's neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all in all. Now he goes in there and he says, you know, nobody's better than another. <laughs> and he talks about uh, there's racial differences, there's Greek and Jew. And there's religious differences. There's circumcised and uncircumcised. And there's cultural differences, barbarian and Scythian. And there's social or economic differences, slave and free. Do you hear it, brothers and sisters? They're all coming into this one corporate body from varied backgrounds and practices and beliefs and as they do it, this, you know, somebody here's Joe Jew and here's Joe Gentile. And they come into the church or Jane Jew and Jane Gen, whatever. And they come in, it's like, well, that's not the way we should do that. Well, I, that's the way I do it. Well, that's not the way I do it. Well, you're wrong. Says who? <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of things that just aren't always clearly spelled out, spelled out through the gospel. Praise the Lord. That's why we have Romans 14. Some of these gray areas, if you will. And the weaker and the stronger brother and so on. 
And these people came from varied backgrounds, very diverse church. Uh, Paul's like, the beauty, the glory of Christ in your unity with one another. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy, beloved, put on tender mercies. So here's the flip side. We've seen what you put off, the vices. Here's the virtues, as you might see for yourself. Put on tender mercies. These are nothing less than Jesus, his own character. And so as these people stayed in fellowship with one another, they learned more about Jesus and his power to overcome their own sinful vices and habits and to be made more into his image. That is the goal. Tender mercies. That, to me, is one of the most beautiful words. <laughs> Tender mercies. You know what that can mean? We were talking before church. It's like a tuning fork, right? You hit it, and there's some sort of harmonic balance, and that's the heart of Jesus. He came into this world, and he lives today, and he has a, a deep, compassionate connection with the brokenness of man, and it affects him personally. There is a tender mercy. I'm reminded in Mark that he's, in, he's ministering publicly and it says he looked around upon them with anger because of the hardness of their heart. It affect, and it grieved him. It affected him to see the, the, the power of sin working in men who should have known better because they were teachers of the Word of God. There's a tender mercy. There's a sympathetic connection with the, the condition of men. There's a kindness which is, would refer to acts, a humility, constantly dependent on God, and a meekness and a long-suffering, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you must do. How did Jesus forgive us? Unconditionally. Right? There was no condition. Well, if you, then I. Nope. I will do this because he did it for me. That's what I will do. Unconditional, without any condition. And he gave us, forgave us completely. And I will say very honestly that you might have to struggle through that for a period of time. Like, today I can forgive you. And then if I don't see you for about six months, I feel like I've got it all figured out and life is good. And then as soon as I see you, whoa, takes your breath away. It's like, ooh, I didn't realize how much I still hate you. <laughs> You're like, oh, Lord Jesus, back to square one. Down on your knees you go. <laughs> but you'll get there. You will get there. Because it's Christ in you the hope of glory. And just because you forgave doesn't mean you have to trust. <laughs> Those are two different things. Hopefully it will come to a place of mutual trust and respect. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts to which you were called in one body and be thankful. And I think I'll stop there this morning because we've reached uh, about the end of our time together in the Word. We may have more to say. 
He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. As I said to you, I'm not sure that that... Now, to you and I, that means very clearly, let the word of the Scriptures, and especially of the Gospels, dwell in you richly. My pastor, Pastor Jeff, told me years ago, it was his instruction to us as the church that he was overseeing at that time. He goes, often be reading the Gospels. I think he actually said, always be reading the Gospels. In your daily devotional reading, you might read Psalms, Proverbs, Old Testament, Epistles, fine. Read the Gospels. Keep the ministry and the, and the shepherding impact of Jesus always front and center. Let him influence you constantly. So that's clearly how we can receive those words in verse 16. For those people probably not having the Gospels, let the word of Christ, I think it would just mean let the truth of the Gospel of Jesus be constantly repeated in your mind of all that He has forgiven you. So just in closing, a couple of questions. What's the personal, what's the goal of personal change? Well, verse 10, he tells us to be conformed into the image of Christ. Where and when does this process occur? Happens all the time. Happens in the church, happens out of the church. Happens with your roommates, happens with your husband and your wife, or with your friends or your kids. That's where and when the process occurs. It's in fellowship with one another at all times. So let me say this to you, and I say to myself. Are you sitting here this morning knowing that there is strife somewhere between you and another? I want you to step back right now and thank God for that because He is using it to conform us more into His likeness. He's actually using that circumstance that you find yourself angry and wrathful. There's an incredible hulk inside of you as there is in me. Just step back and go, thank you, Lord. That you're using that. And may I surrender in humility to what you're doing in my life. What's the speed of change? What is the speed of change? These are some of the questions that go through my mind. What's the goal? The glory of Christ manifested in us. When and where does it occur? All the time. In fellowship with other humans. What's the speed of change? Well, now, that's interesting. That seems like that's dependent on my obedience. You know what fascinates me? Paul refers to the Holy Spirit once in this letter to the church in Colossae. I think I said it last week. The Holy Spirit will inspire you. He'll convict you. He'll lead you into truth. He does everything for you. He gives us the life and the power of Jesus Christ. He will not make you obey. That's on you. And all these words, you know, let the Word of God dwell. Those are choice words. In other words, they're words I make a choice as I'm living. I detect an unrighteous anger. Am I going to live in that? Feels good, I admit. Paul's like, don't do that. 
So what's the speed of change? Determine on your faith and on your obedience. To praise the Lord. Let's stand and we'll pray together in closing. And uh, It's been a blessed time in fellowship this morning. I thank you so much, friends, for being here. I just so appreciate it. Thank you, Jesus, that your word is intensely practical and it strikes us right at the core of what we all recognize within us. Judge not, lest you be judged. Oh, Lord, it seems like that's the default in my life. My first reaction is so often to find something wrong or to believe something that has been said without having knowledge of the facts. I thank you, Lord, that your scriptures change us. Your spirit changes us. That you change us, Lord, more into your likeness. And as a result, the body of Christ fulfills the prayer that you, the head, prayed for us. That the world may know that they're my children. Lord, I pray for those here and anybody listening that, you know, these are real things and uh, can be some of the hardest things in all of life to deal with. To not forgive. To live in that slow burn and just become accepting of our anger. So, Lord, I pray that you would pour out your grace, great grace upon all of us. Please help us, Lord. Please. I pray in your name. Amen. God bless you.